This is my sixth, no, this is my seventh Easter message. And uh, we have looked at the resurrection from a number of different vantage points, but I'd like to take a look at, uh, at the resurrection from the dead from perhaps uh, a viewpoint that you've never had occasion to view the resurrection before. And that's from the standpoint of someone who lived hundreds of years before Christ. We're accustomed to seeing the resurrection from the standpoint of the apostles who lived, at, who lived after the event and were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. But uh, perhaps you've never looked at it from someone who lived before the incarnation. And uh, this is a, uh, from the hand of a poet. It's a poem uh, written hundreds of years, as far as we know, hundreds of years before Christ came. Will you turn with me to Psalm 73? Psalm 73. I want you to think for a moment with me about the problem of, uh, of injustice in the world, what the theologians call the theodicy, that is the, ne the necessity to somehow justify God and his dealings with uh, his race. Uh, as most of us uh, look around, we come to the conclusion that uh, life is not fair. Any reasonable view of justice was, would lead us to believe that, uh, that good people would receive good things in this life and bad people would receive bad. But what you actually see is that in life there are good people and there are bad people and there are good things that happen to people and there are evil things, but uh, there's no particular correspondence. Uh, if there is any correspondence, it very often is inverse. Uh, bad things happen to good people and very good things happen to very bad people. And as Winnie the Pooh says, that's a puzzlement to us <laughs> and bothers us, particularly when it gets very personal, when we have decided to follow God and to honor him, and nothing turns out well for us. Our mates leave us, so we're left to raise the children alone, our businesses uh, collapse, uh, all sorts of physical things happen to us, and we begin to wonder, is God good? Now, that's the problem that faced the, uh, the poet. As he begins his, uh, his poem in verse 1, he, he repeats what I think is probably a, a little couplet, little doublet that he had heard in a sermon or had read some, somewhere, but which at this point in the poem did not believe at all. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Sounds good. Uh, God is good to people that are pure. That is, the word has to do with being devoted with being single-minded, those who are single-minded about God experience God's goodness. Sounds good, but it really doesn't ring true to some of us. And it didn't to the, to the poet. He had his doubts. As he goes on to say, as for me, uh, I didn't find this was true. My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The word he uses for arrogance here is a term that, that indicates some form of insanity, some kind of irrational behavior. And I think this is what he has in mind. I, I, I've mentioned before my uh, old Owyhee County rancher friend, whom I had a, an occasion to share the gospel with, and his response was, well, I haven't needed God for 88 years. Why should I need him now? And I looked around at his life. He's very prosperous. He's very healthy and strong and sturdy in his 80s, surrounded by his family, all of his children and their wives lived nearby. He had most of the good things of life. 
And uh, yet he only gave thanks to himself. He never thought to thank God for what God, out of his grace, had provided. Now, that's really a form of very irrational behavior, that kind of arrogance. Because uh, if he had stopped and thought for a moment, the next breath that he drew was a gift from God. It was God who had made it possible for him to accumulate all these possessions and to know love and laughter and and to participate in, in, in many of the good things in life. The problem is there are people like that in the world that never give God the time of day, and yet God continues to prosper them, and it throws us. And it threw the poet. He couldn't understand it. And uh, uh, his, his concern is more than a, a dispassionate concern for justice, as he puts it. He was jealous. The thing really bothered him that he didn't get in, in on it. He was envious of the prosperity of, of the wicked. Uh, I, I love these uh, Old Testament people. The, the so-called biblical heroes cut very unheroic figures. You know, they're just uh, small men and women that God makes great. They're made. We're all, and we can identify. You know, we're all made out of the same stuff. We have the same kind of feelings. We look at our lives and uh, the the kind of loyalty that we have for the Lord is not rewarded by the good things in life. And we have the same kind of struggle that, that the poet had. Now he warms to his task as he continues to describe what he calls the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. If you have a New American Standard translation, it reads, there is no pain in their death. And I think that's probably a better translation. It's a difficult phrase, but that seems to be the sense of it. We like to think, well, you know, sooner or later the wicked get their comeuppance. Uh, they die a painful death. Or in the very end, their evil catches up with them. But that's not true. A lot of people go to their death, and their death is peaceful and painless. And uh, they never seem, there never seems to be any retribution, any redress for the evil that, that they've done. The psalmist says they, they die restful and and peaceful, they they are free from the burdens common to man. Sometimes we think, well, there's no circumstantial retribution, but they must uh, they must suffer internally. They must feel the pangs of conscience. But many don't. Many don't. They go to their their graves, as the psalmist goes on to say, fat and happy. They they really don't suffer at all. They seem to have no sense of of remorse. The whole thing bothers them. They're plagued by human ills. Later on in verse 14, he says, All day long I've been plagued, but they're not. Excuse me, I misread that. They are not plagued by human ills. But he is. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They wear their their pride proudly and ostentatiously. They clothe themselves with violence. They engage in violent acts. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. They, They don't feel any guilt or regret or remorse over what they've done. They're hard of heart. The evil conceits of their minds knows no limit. There's no end to what they claim they can do and be without God. They scoff and speak with malice in their arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the, of the earth. They are big talkers. God never does silence them. Therefore, uh, his, that is God's people, turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. That's like our idiom. Uh, people drink it up. They look at their lifestyle and their worldview and they these guys are getting away scot-free. So why should we bother with God? 
You see, they drink it in. They're influenced by it. They're swayed by it. They, they say, that is, God's people say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Apparently God isn't even aware of what's going on. Or if he is aware, he doesn't care. This is what the wicked are like, he says. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. That was terribly confusing to the poet. It just didn't make any sense. Particularly when it's so personal. It's one thing to uh, look at life and see that the wicked seem to flourish and, and the godly don't. But uh, it, it gets very personal when, it, when you're the one who is trying to follow the Lord. You're trying to walk in daily friendship with him. And yet nothing is going your way. And, and any reasonable view of justice would say if we're on the right course, then the universe will line up with us. But it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and as he puts it it, it, it was a puzzlement to him. It was a big bother. As a matter of fact, it almost caused him to lose his, his faith. He says back in verse 2, As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. It's an analogy to mountain climbing. He's going up this steep face, which represents the knowledge of God. And he's hanging on by his fingertips and his toes. And uh, he looks around at the evident prosperity of, of the godless and uh, the difficulty that godly people experience, particularly his own experience. And he says, I almost lost my grip and fell away. I almost apostatized. I almost lost my faith, you see. And, and, and in verse 13, he says, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Remember how he began? God is good to those that are pure in heart. And, and, he, and he looks at how good God has been to him. And he says, doesn't work. It's not true. It's just an empty word. doesn't ring true. In vain, it's empty for me to keep my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I am plagued. I have been disciplined or punished every morning. I wake up every morning feeling like I've been beaten. I've been beat up, he says. Life is not fair. It isn't right. God isn't running the world right, and he certainly isn't running my life right. But uh, then there is uh, uh, a, a dawning of truth, one of these significant moments of truth that strike all of us. And he begins to change his thinking. If I had said, I will speak thus, in other words, if I had shared my doubt about God and his goodness, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. I would be no better than those uh, that the ungodly are influencing by their uh, ungodly uh, uh, lifestyle. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Uh, actually, the, the word that's translated final destiny is just one word after. Then I, uh, I, then I understood, quote, underline, exclamation point, after. Now, his point is this. If we did not have any news from outside, if, if there were no revelation from God about life and, and things, we would come to the conclusion that God is, is not good. Uh, but when you, when you listen to what God has to say, there is some information that cannot be gained by reason or by uh, the scientific method or any of the purely human methods that we use to, to acquire knowledge. When I went into the sanctuary of God, that is, I went into God's presence, and I began to listen to him. The sanctuary of God represents the place of revelation. 
Ah, he said, there was a forgotten factor, something that I had forgotten or something that I didn't know. After. There is, after all, something after. This is not the end. This isn't all there is. Now he explains in the verses that follow. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. The they are the arrogant, those that don't give God the time of day, those that have no room in their life for God. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away into terror. Now the word for terror is a poetic designation for the grave and what follows. As a dream, when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you despise them as fantasies. In other words, these people who live that way, as though this is all there is, are living in a dream world. They're living in a fantasy world. It's not the real world. The real world comes after. And what they forget, and what we all are would like to forget, is that we all have to die. That's the only certainty left to us in this life is death. Not even taxes are certain anymore. You can avoid those or evade them in various ways. But there is one certainty that everyone has to face, and that's the fact of death. Uh, as George Bernard Shaw said, and I quoted him in my, my column yesterday, the statistics uh, on death are very striking. One out of every one people die. <laughs> At least... Uh, uh, for the last few years, the death rate has been 100%. We all have to face death. That's one of those hard facts that we keep running our heads up against, but we don't want to face. We try to evade it in various ways. We try to ignore it. We try to pretend it isn't going to happen. We try to stave it off as long as we can. That's where the whole cosmetics industry comes from, is an attempt to try to stave off death as long as we can medical profession, medical institutions, the enormous amounts of money that go into our national defense budget are all attempts to try to keep death off as long as we possibly can. But sooner or later, we have to face the fact of death. See? It's certain. It's sure. See? Uh, I, one of the most striking stories I've ever heard concerned a stockbroker who uh, found a, a bottle in his basement and he rubbed it and out popped this genie. And uh, the genie granted him the, the usual uh, request, kind of a stingy genie. He only gave him one request. And uh, the man, being a very shrewd and wise person, asked for a copy of the New York Times five years hence. And he stopped and think about that for a moment. The first thing he did was turn to the stock market reports, and he started looking and realizing how much money he could make in five years. And he happened to see his picture on the adjacent page, and he looked, and it was his obituary. <laughs> that really puts things in focus. See. Everything else becomes irrelevant. We like to pretend it's not going to happen, but it is. There's no question about it. It's a sure thing. That's why the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says there's more reality at a funeral than there is at a party, because there at least you have to face things as they really are. And that's what the poet is saying. We're all on this slippery slide to death, and afterward, he says, God abandons them. 
Now, that's what I think hell is. I, I think for myself, I, I do not think we are forced by Scripture to believe in a place of literal fire and brimstone. I think we're more indebted to uh, Dante and, and Milton for that image than we are to Scripture. Scripture says hell is simply a, a, a place of abandonment where we are utterly and finally outside, repelled, uh, abandoned, left to ourselves, permitted to do exactly what we want to do, when we want to do it, where we want to do it, with no restrictions, whatever. It's ultimately a provision of love. God says, if you don't want to live and walk with me, if you don't want my love, that's all right, I'm not going to force it on you, and so I'll, I'll let you have what you want. And, and so we go out into eternity without God, and, and we are, we're left alone, left to ourselves, left to our own devices. For all the good things that God has planned for us, love and laughter and, and, and warmth, are gone. There's nothing there but coldness and lovelessness and, and all the evil that we can produce. And that's what makes hell, hell. It's simply the absence of God, you see. Now, that's the way he describes them. They are outside, unspeakably ignored, as C.S. Lewis puts it. Because they've been living in a dream world, they felt that this is the real thing. This is all there is, and they did not think about after. But uh, the psalmist realizes that when he was thinking this way about life and he was preoccupied with circumstances rather than God himself, he was just like an animal. When my heart was grieved, verse 21, and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a, a brute beast before you. And what he had forgotten was this. I am always with you. You see, what, what sustained him in life through the hard things of life right now was the fact that he knew God, and they didn't. And as he's going to go on to say, that's all he needed. He didn't need anything else. He just needed God. The God who loved him and who cared for him and who had provided for him throughout his life. Note how he describes it. You, he says, uh, the, the verb is in the past. You have held me by my right hand. That's the past. Evokes a picture of a, a father taking a little boy by the hand and, and leading him through, through life. And as he looks back on his life, he thinks through his childhood and his early adulthood and then adulthood. And, and he had walked in friendship with God. He had known God. And despite the hardness of his circumstances, God had been his friend and had cared for him and had taken him successfully through life. Years ago, when, when our son Brian was about three or four years of age, I took him with me to go, to go pick up a babysitter. And uh, uh, it was summertime in California, and he had on his little short pants. And, and uh, we stepped up on the porch, and there was this big, ugly mutt lying across the door. And it, the dog looked very unfriendly, but uh, didn't growl or make any uh, menacing noises. So I just ignored the dog and stepped over him and rang the doorbell. And the moment I rang the doorbell, he attacked Brian, just leaped up without a growl and, and struck out for those little skinny legs. And uh, Brian leaped up into the air and did about three or four steps in the air and then uh, threw himself on my back and climbed up on my shoulders and wrapped his legs around my neck and his <coughs> arms around my head and just started screaming. And uh, the dog, realizing he'd lost his chance, took me on and grabbed me by the leg, <coughs> started munching on my shin and, 
And I was jumping around on one foot trying to kick the dog with the other. And Brian was saying, kick him, Dad, kick him, Dad. <laughs> Pretty soon the, the dog's master came out and dragged him off of me. And, and later as I was limping back to the car, uh, Brian looked up at me and he said, Dad, he said, I'll go anywhere with you. <laughs> well, his, his faith was a little bit misplaced, but uh, that's what the psalmist is saying. Regardless of the adversity of life, the dogs that take you on, he says, God has held my right hand. You guided me with your counsel. And the, the verb is in the present tense. You are presently guiding me with your wise counsel. And after. Same word that he uses in verse uh, 17. This translated final destiny. After. You will take me into glory. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the Old Testament has no strong concept of a resurrection from the dead. It does. Very clear. This is one of a number of passages that refer to a hope after death. And the hope specifically is, is that of being with God, being with Him. It's always the way it's put. And this particular verb, taken, to take me or take Him, is frequently used in the Old Testament of resurrection. It's the word that's used of Enoch back in Genesis 5 where it says that Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. Just took him out of this uh, terrible pre-flood era where men were so wicked and he was, he was taken to be with God. In his case, it was a translation. He never saw death. One of the few men who bypassed death to go with God. And uh, it's used earlier back in Psalm 49 where... Uh, uh, the psalmist says, uh, he talks about those who are destined for the grave, but the upright will rule over them in the morning. It's a poetic figure for a resurrection. The word is dawn. They will rule over them in the dawn. Their forms will decay in the grave, but God will redeem me from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. The poetic parallelism ensures us that he's talking about a resurrection. He will redeem me from the grave. He will take me to be with himself. Uh, back in 71, I think it was, when the Israelis uh, uh, rescued the hostages from Entebbe Airport. All of you, I'm sure, remember that event. And uh, in commemoration of that event, they struck a, a medallion. And I bought it because I, uh, I was just, uh, I was so impressed by that by that rescue. And when I received it, I discovered that on the, on the front of it, in, in Hebrew, you have a phrase from Psalm 18, Yishlak Mimrom Yakakni. He sent from above and he took me. Same word. And I thought, boy, what a beautiful illustration of, of an Old Testament resurrection with those, those Israelis swooping into that airport and miraculously delivering those hostages from the hands of, of those that had taken them captive and taken them home back to Israel. He sent from above and he took me. And that's the way the Old Testament describes this resurrection. David, remember David when, when his, his young son, his son by Bathsheba, died. Uh, some of you may have seen King David. They botched the whole thing up because they made it apply to Absalom rather than to his young son. But uh, David's reaction his grieving reaction was i he will not come to me but i will go to him he knew he knew there was something after and so does this psalmist 
I am always with you, he says. Underscore that always. You, you have held me by the right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And after, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? That's what made heaven heavenly for the psalmist. God was there. And that's what makes heaven heavenly for us. Because we are with the Lord. That's the way Jesus put it. When the disciples were so concerned about, about uh, his, his, the imminency of his death and theirs. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Keep on trusting in me. In my Father's house are many places to dwell, many rooms. And he says, heaven's like a big mansion, and the Father's there, and there's love and warmth and comfort and support and caring. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. He's going through the cross, through death, to prepare a place for you. And when I prepare a place for you, he said, I'll come back and receive you unto myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. That's, that's what heaven is. It's just being with the Lord. We know him now. We can walk through life with him and through all the difficult circumstances of life. And then after, we, we live with him eternally. That's why he says, my flesh and my heart, that is my mind, may fail as I age. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The only difference between the poet and uh, those who were godless was that he knew God and they did not. And that made all the difference in the world. That informed his view of life now, in the here and now. He knew God. And that's what makes the difference, you see. As he goes on to say in the, in the last part of the psalm, there are some who are far from God, but as for me, in verse 28, it's just good to be near God. Or as the NASB puts it with the emphasis, really, that's there in the phrase, the nearness of God is my good. I don't look at my circumstances and get all discouraged. And begin to doubt God's goodness. My goodness is God. His presence in my life. And he'll take me through anything. I know he's good. Not because I am rewarded in this life. And everything's going my way. I know he's good. Because of the cross. You see that's what makes the difference. We look at circumstances. And infer that God is not good. But if you look at the cross. You know that he is good. This man had not yet seen the cross. But we look back through the cross to this man's hope. You see, it was by means of the cross that Jesus made it possible for this man to look forward to an eternal hope. The, the cross happened in history uh, almost 2,000 years ago now, but it has implications both ways in history. It covered this man's sin, and it covers ours. Because the real problem, you see, is sin. That's what keeps us from enjoying God forever. Death is not natural. Don't let anyone tell you that. Scientists tell us that death is a biological necessity. Everyone was supposed to die from the very beginning. It's not true. We were intended to live forever, and that's why we have this yearning for eternity. We want something more than this life. We're more than animals. We know we were made for God and for, for an eternal realm. And... It's, but, you see, sin cuts short that hope. It's by sin that death entered into the world. And so our Lord came to vanquish sin and banish death. Made sin, he sin or through, and death by dying slew. See? Death is what he came to uh, take away, and he did it by dying. The Incarnation is, is the central event of, of Christian theology. 
And in the greatest mystery, it, it's, it's difficult for us to understand how God could become mortal and die. As Charles Wesley put, put it, tis mystery all, the immortal dies. How, how can you explain that? You can't. You can't. But he became one with us, shared our life, died on the cross for us to banish sin and thus to banish death. A friend of mine told me about a t-shirt he saw once that had inscribed on it, uh, life is hard and then you die. And that sounds grim, but it's true. It's so true. It's life. And it struck me in thinking about it that that's, that could be said of God. When he became man, life for him was hard and then he died. But he did it for us. He banished death. He put it away. We still have to die, but you see, he takes the fear out of death. That's what Paul means when he quotes Isaiah who says that the sting of death has been removed. It's not the painful thing that it is apart from Christ. It's not the dreaded thing. It's sweet transition from one realm of life to another. As Paul puts it, it's just the, the way to have more of God. I've got him now, and, and I'm going to depart and be with Christ, and that's a whole lot better than what I have right now. It's nothing to be, to be feared. I mentioned in my column again, C.S. Lewis' story of Ransom, the scientist who goes off to Mars and he encounters inhabitants of Mars who are unfallen and one of one of the inhabitants says to him he talks to him about a sweet drink that he drank he said that was the sweetest of all drinks until I drink the drink of death and go home to be with Maladel which that's their name for God because in an unfallen state death is nothing to be feared it's just transition from one life to another and for us in a redeemed state those of us who know the Lord Jesus it's nothing to be feared it's, it's simply the, the door to a greater and greater experience with God. He's taken the fear and the sting out of death. It just means knowing more of him. And that informs our view of life now. What gives meaning to life now is that we know God, that he loves us, that he cares for us. So we can get our eyes off of our circumstances and forget the raw deal that we think life is handed to us, that we can get our eyes on God and walk with Him. That's what He wants. He's seeking us to worship Him, as Jesus put it, to the woman at the well in Samaria. He's yearning for us. His heart longs for you and for me. The psalmist says there are only two kind of people in the world. There are those that are far off from God and there are those that are near God. It doesn't talk about good people and bad people and people that sin and people that don't sin. That's not the issue. We're either near God and drawing nearer to Him or we're far from God. And the problem is us. It's not God. God hasn't turned His back on us. It's not our sins that separate us from God. Those have already been paid for. The only thing that keeps us from God is our indifference to Him. And when we turn our hearts to Him, He responds in love. James says, if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. Let's pray. I guess we all have to ask ourselves that question. Are we drawing near to God and thus experiencing his presence and his power? Or are we keeping him at a distance? Are we far off and getting farther away? And are we facing the prospect of someday being utterly unspeakably alone 
apart from God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you believe that? In the quietness of your own heart, if you've never done this before, would you submit your own soul, your own person, your life to Jesus as Lord? Will you thank him for dying for you and banishing death, for dying for your sin, for submitting to that humiliation so that we can have glory? Will you just say, Lord Jesus, come into my life, take it over, make me what you want me to be, fill me with your love and your caring. Thank you for coming into my life. The apostle tells us that he who comes to him, that if anyone comes to him, he will not cast them off. No one is, is too evil, has gone too far. No one is undone. The grace of God, it's, it's infinite. It's available for all. Will you submit to him? Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for saving my soul. Father, we do thank you for being our Lord. Thank you for satisfying us with yourself. Thank you that, that we can know you. And that you know us. And that you love us. And pursue us with your love relentlessly. Thank you for wooing us and drawing us to yourself. We have nothing to offer up but ourselves, which we do, Lord, in faith. Thank you for coming into our life, for giving us eternal life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.